Hello everyone and welcome to the Giant Brain Lecture Theatre. I'm Ian McAllister and I'll be your interviewer tonight. My guest tonight first came to the attention of the UK tabletop scene when he exploded out of the gate in 2018 with his fantasy board game City of Kings. His company, City of Games, went on to host conventions, make more games, and most recently had phenomenal success with the Isle of Cats. Recently elected to the Game Manufacturers Association board as the publisher director, and I'm sure he has some grand plans for the future. I'm delighted to welcome Frank West to the Giant Brain Lecture Theatre. How are you doing, Frank? Yeah, no, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be having a chat with you. How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, it's lovely and sunny here. It was pouring with rain about 30 minutes ago, but that's Scotland for you. Glorious sunshine one minute and torrential rain the next. Uh, But yeah, no, it's been a rather nice day. It's very, very warm as well, especially warm in my study with a computer firing and all my windows closed so I don't get outside noise. (laughs) Yeah, it's nice and warm down here as well. I'm glad that we're just doing a podcast and I don't need to have all my lights and cameras on because it keeps the warmth down a little bit in here. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I I can imagine. So uh, let's talk about Isle of Cats. Um, the, I have two dogs. Uh, why not dogs? <laughs> why cats, not dogs? So I grew up with a lot of dogs and I've kind of always was a dog person. I kind of slowly transitioned to being more of a cat person. I think that's just through life's choices, you know, of it being easier to have cats than dogs when you're kind of working and going out to work and stuff. But it really, it came down to the kind of the thematic and mechanical side of things. And, you know, the whole inspiration behind this game started with the concept of cats lie in strange shapes. Why hasn't someone done a polyomino game, one of these Tetrisy games, using that kind of concept of the cats being stretched out into these positions so it was really a like that that mechanical concept of how the art would work that kind of made cats the forefront runner for the game cool to be more serious for a moment isle of cats has obviously been a huge hit it spawned a second crowdfunding campaign bunch of expansions and was on the hotness on board game geek for some time you've written recently on your blog about the inside of the lid that encouraged owners of the game to take photos of their cats in the box lid how important do you think that engagement you got from that aspect of it has been to the success of the game it's so hard to measure because this is one of those things that you know it it may have done nothing, it may have done loads. You can't associate a sale of the game to someone having seen that thing inside the box lid because no one's going to buy it because of that, but they might become aware of it because of that. And, you know, as I said in the article, across, like, Instagram and YouTube and kind of TikTok and Facebook and Twitter and all the different social channels, there was over a million views of different photos and videos, which were cats in the box with that kind of target symbol kind of showing and kind of being the premise of why they did this. And in my head, I have to look at it and say, well, if we didn't do this, then that's potentially a million views that may never have happened. So when you're a small publisher, you've got a game that's, you know, it's been successful, but you don't have this huge audience, how do you get an audience aware? Having an extra million people see it was probably quite a good leg up from not having it. Yeah, um, I mean, it was fantastic. I mean, I I saw it everywhere. I saw cats and and some dogs in the box as well and various other pets alongside. And that was the great thing. It it wasn't just cats. Everyone wanted to get involved, you know. Like, obviously, (laughs) if you weren't a cat person, then your dog could be a cat. Your teddy could be a cat. You can make a fake cat. We had balloon cats. We had knitted cats. We had drawn cats. So we had all sorts of stuff. And it it was just a nice event as much as anything else. And in the second Kickstarter, we kind of did a competition for getting as many different animals safely in the box lid as possible possible and we ended up with all sorts of stuff like my preference you know my favorite one which we got by the end was we had a full living penguin inside the box lid which as a big fan of penguins was something (laughs) i never imagined to have happened but we had you know horses we had all sorts of like animals like in this box lid just being shared around and it was it was incredible to see hang on horses like like full-size sort of like big horses yep full-size horses with like their front feet inside the box lid and stuff 
Fantastic. Where did where did the penguin picture come from? Was it a zoo or something? It was, yes. Yeah. So one of the um, backers of the campaign happened to know someone who worked in basically a sanctuary for penguins. And when they went to, um, they spoke to them and they were doing like the weighing of the penguins in kind of like the veterinary area. And they just kind of put the box lid next to the scales and just did a couple of quick photos during that process. So it was obviously done very kind of safely and kind of, you know, for, for as much as you can call it, by professionals but it was just like for me it was like the most magical thing because it was something that we kind of said wouldn't it be incredible if this eventually happened and like somehow it did and you know i i never imagined seeing a penguin in that box fantastic professional penguin wranglers absolutely fantastic so do you hope isle of cats will become an evergreen title for you because it's obviously been very popular it was on working geek hotness for ages and i i I see everywhere in all sorts of shops do do you think it'll become that sort of evergreen title yeah i guess the thing with evergreens is it's hard to define when something is an evergreen and when it isn't an evergreen so i've had a lot of retailers and some distributors say to me they already consider it an evergreen now because it's been around for you know a couple of years and the volume of sales is still increasing it's still spreading it's still growing and they feel like it's hit that point where that ball's just going to keep rolling i mean for me having never had an evergreen game before like i i don't know at what point i will sit back and be like yeah i I guess we're there you know it'll be like 2055 and the game's been around for 30 odd years and i'll be there (laughs) maybe next year i'll agree but you know at the moment it it looks like it's very much on track for that to say the least great fantastic um so your your first game was city of kings and it's arguably much more of a sort of hardcore hobbyist title Uh, Your output since then has seemed a bit more friendly to newcomers, to the hobby, and those looking for a lighter experience. Was there something in particular behind your sort of change in direction after City of Kings? So whilst obviously from the current point in time it's seen as like a change of direction it is something that's always kind of been part of that long-term plan so my goal is always to deliver to design and um, deliver bigger more complicated games and lighter more kind of family-based games and to kind of alternate between them now there's there's a couple of things around that one of them is obviously the bigger more complicated games take a lot longer to develop so they're going to be a lot less frequent and also during the last kind of couple of years with the pandemic because of the complexity of those games i much prefer to do the playtesting in person so that kind of put a good like year delay on one that was currently in development so my my like i anticipate at the moment that it will be one big game to kind of like every three or four little games and that kind of frequency but of course as someone who's only going to be releasing like one game every 12 months or so that's like very much subject to change yeah of course talking about other games you've been developing and i remember this being talked about at an expo many years ago you recently put out a post about a game called rising blades in that post you talked about spending the money to develop the game and that was twenty five thousand pounds and you eventually pulled that from production what led to you making that decision and how hard was it to sort of kill your darlings like that? <laughs> it was very, very hard. And even to today, some of the playtesters and people around me are still frustrated that I made that decision because they think that, you know, the game is good to go and they think that it looks great, it plays well, it's unique, and they think that I should have just released it. But for me, I'm you know, I I like to interact with my community. I don't kind of do this as I'm a business, here's like the wall between us. I try to interact with people. I try to talk to people. I want to have that connection. And most importantly, I love going to conventions. And when I'm at conventions, I want to be able to stand in front of people and believe in the games I'm showing them. I want to be passionate about the games I'm showing them. And with Rising Blades, it was a good game, but there was something in there. There was something that just keeps like, just like cutting away at me making me feel like there was something that just wasn't quite there and with that 
I couldn't confidently stand in front of someone and say, this is the perfect game where my measurements are perfect because I wasn't happy with it. And I spent a good couple of years after the game was basically done trying to solve that problem. And I never really kind of managed to. So it's been put to the side. It's now kind of been um, scavenged for bits. I guess they're going to go into other <laughs> games, hopefully, and re- be reborn in some other form. Do you think you'll ever go back to it, revisit the ideas behind it? I I really don't know. I think that if I did, I would probably have to start from scratch. But it's hard because obviously so much money and time was invested into that already. Then there's lots of other ideas that I want to explore. And is it worth taking the risk that I might just end up back in that same position over having the chance to make a whole other game that may or may not be something else? Right, yeah. You've spoken publicly about the pressures of board game publishers caused by the ongoing situation in global shipping, and it seems like that problem's not going away anytime soon. What impact do you think shipping will have on the hobby in 2022 and, and beyond? I think that these days, the the shipping issue itself is a tricky one because I don't really see it as the shipping issue anymore. I see it as the manufacturing and shipping issue, you know, just the way the economies of the world are changing, the things are becoming more expensive, things are becoming more costly. And this is all going to impact us in the same ways. Like manufacturing costs are going up in ways that shipping costs have gone up in some, like not as much, but to a considerable amount. Then you've got the fact that timelines has kind of been hit there's been problems with things like getting from one place to another because of constant lockdowns or changes or lack of staff and so on like even protests and different things like this so i feel like these days it's it's a case of just reevaluating. you've got to be more careful you've got to be more cautious is this a game that's worth releasing is the physical size of this game viable kind of to do because i think there's this big thing especially with crowdfunding of the bigger the box the more stuff in it the better but maybe now as we kind of move forward that's going to be starting to change there's a game which i'm going to be releasing um releasing announcing in a few months time and that game is a smaller box than the art of cats the game itself you know is a similar kind of game in terms of like the amount of stuff but the box is going to be smaller and the reason for this is because i've worked out that by reducing the box size to the size it's going to be i can get an extra maybe 20 percent of those games in a container and that means you know if you've got a shipping container that costs you twenty thousand dollars and you've got five thousand games in it you're paying four dollars per game if you can get an extra thousand games into that box into that container then you're going to be cutting that cost down considerably and i think these are things that people are going to be starting to think about more they're going to start approaching more what is the kind of viability of this and how can i condense it but still make it presentable and seem like it's kind of a good value in just the last couple of weeks have seen Kill Many or Not run into problems with Marvel Zombicide and Oathsworn, I believe it was in some trouble as well. They're both asking for extra money from backers. Oathsworn much, much less than um, Simon were, thankfully. How how do you feel about those sort of like those big miniature heavy Kickstarters? Do do you think they are now sort of like, like you said, do you think they're now dying a death and we will see a trend towards smaller games in general from publishers? So I think that my view on this is kind of a bigger picture. And this isn't specific about either of the two people you've just, or two companies you've just mentioned, but it's much more about this concept of good businesses are going to survive and bad businesses are going to be more likely to fail. As with all industries, you know, you've got a few people at the top who are making money. You've got a bunch of people that, you know, are doing okay. Then you've got a whole bunch of people, like many, many more companies that are surviving. You know, they're they're living off project to project, game to game. If they have one disaster or one failure, that might be it to kind of knock them over the edge and kind of into that despair of having to kind of take the company apart. And I think that over the years, people have been a little bit more, hey, it's going to cost me this much to make a game. I'm going to set it for that. That's just how the numbers work. I don't need to do too much thinking about it. But now 
those costs are changing. Those kind of margins are reducing and people are having to adapt and kind of make changes. And I really feel like the business, the kind of the people who are actually thinking about like from a business perspective, how do I make this financially viable are the people who are going to succeed? You know, in regards to people like upping costs and charging more later, I, without a doubt, don't think that it's the right thing to do. You know, if you've put out something at a price, by default, that is the price you sold it for. And that is the price you should be working to. Now, there are situations around that. You know, you mentioned um, Oathsworn, and that is a really, really difficult situation because that is a game that was due to deliver, I think, like three years ago before the pandemic even existed, before all of this stuff happened. And now you can sit there and say, well, why did it take so long? Why has it been so late? Why has it done this? Why has it done that? Are these problems that have resulted in this and therefore it's their fault? But the one thing you can say fairly is they had no way of predicting this shipping change because it's just something that no one could have predicted. Whilst with, like, Call Mini or not, I believe that their Kickstarter was only within the last year or so. So for them, there's there's not been this big, giant shift. There's nothing that's really that different now than it was then. So to me, that says that someone somewhere made a mistake, whether they miscalculated box sizes, whether they miscalculated weights, whether it was a deliberate thing, an accidental thing, I don't know. I assume it was an accidental thing because who would want to go through this kind of process and have that negativity? But... It was something that says to me, someone made a mistake that could have been accounted for. And this is where it becomes hard because, you know, at the end of the day, if you want your stuff, you're going to have to pay it because that's the nature of kind of crowdfunding and stuff. But I really feel we're going to see that difference now between the more casual hobbyist businesses that have grown over the last five to ten years and the people who actually understand how to run a business and how to kind of get the financial side of it right. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. There are there definitely like one of the great things about crowdfunding is that it gives people access to the ability to just sort of start something up and try and get their thing made. That is also the absolute downside of all crowdfunding as well, is that anyone can try and do it. I, I, I follow like some tech kickstars every now and again, never actually pledging because things go wrong in tech kickstars it's really easy to make one of a thing and show off your prototype yeah. it's incredibly difficult to make a hundred thousand of that thing in china and ship them worldwide and i mean tech kickstarters you they just yeah. so rarely deliver you know it, we're very lucky that the board game ones do and for me again this is where that difference is you know if it's a first time creator and they're doing their first project you can be more forgiving as long yeah, as absolutely up until the point when it goes wrong they've showed that they've tried their best and they've done a good job you know if people have come along and they've always been kind of a little bit quiet and a little bit sloppy from day one then to me that's a red flag but if someone has shown that they tried their best and then it's just generally gone wrong i feel like that's very different to someone just coming along and being like hey we're not telling you anything but we now need some more money and that kind of behavior and change is something that i feel like will be what shifts our industry quite a lot you're talking there about sort of general rise in prices and materials and the general sort of squeeze and margins do you fear that board games are going to price i mean they're already a sort of luxury item let's face it but do you fear that board games are going to sort of price themselves out of availability to the more general populace it, it's, it's such a tough question right now because you know i i don't want to get like political and talk about like too much on the outside but i think it's fair to say like we see this in the uk that prices for everything right now are just yeah. skyrocketing you know if you want petrol it's now costing you what 20 percent more than it was a couple of years ago uh, recently in the uk like a bottle of milk has gone up by like 30 percent you know everything is going up by chunks so it's really hard to say how is this going to impact the board game side of things when everything's doing it now obviously as a kind of as a big picture the amount of money people are going to have to spend on hobbyist things is likely to decrease and that will have an impact but i think that what it will do is it will really further push the divide between big special crowdfunding hobbyist games and what we sell at retail and we kind of see in the more mass market side of things i think that divide will grow more and more whilst ideally they would kind of come closer together 
What do you think about GameFound moving into the crowdfunding space? They've recently launched more publicly, so anyone can use their service. How how do you feel about them as a competitor to Kickstarter? I am definitely for GameFound and competition and competitors. I really want to see more like viable platforms launching and succeeding. Right now, as like my personal opinion on GameFound is the concept behind it is great. The idea is great. The implementation is it's like 80% there in my eyes. I feel like the implementation is really good for experienced people who are used to kind of backing lots of projects. I don't feel like it's so great for people who are newer. So I feel like it's got less discoverability and it's going to be harder. So if you're someone who is creating lots of big games and you have a big giant following, I think GameFound right now is going to be a great place for you. But if you're a new person or you don't have that big following and you're really reliant on kind of the discoverability, then I don't think GameFound is kind of anywhere near at the level that Kickstarter is. And that's obviously something that's going to come at time. You know, GameFound needs to grow from a point. I think the approach they took of starting as a pledge manager getting all of those accounts in and kind of growing from that is definitely the approach that I would have taken if I had wanted to set up a crowdfunding kind of competitor. But it's one of those things that I still feel like they're years away from being a strong, active competition for new creators. But we'll see how we kind of get there. Like right now, I wouldn't run a um, crowdfunding campaign on there, but I would use them as a pledge manager. And I certainly hope in a couple of years' time to be able to change that kind of mindset. You're you're still planning to use Kickstarter for future products, are you? I am, yes. And yeah. I think that right now for the kind of more mass market games, that that is like is the sensible decision and there's been a several projects just in the last month or so where the creators are more mass market projects they've had extremely successful kickstarters and they've gone on to game found and they've gotten like 15 20 percent of the number of backers because they're not that more hardcore hobbyist audience i feel like they have kind of struggled to kind of get enough like general attention Kickstarter obviously announced their intention to use blockchain technology in the back end of the their systems. They haven't actually made that change yet, but a lot of people sort of threatened to leave the platform if they did. What's your own feeling on that? Would, would you go to GameFound or some other form of crowdfunding if Kickstarter went ahead with its blockchain plans? So I kind of feel that this is a situation that they made a statement. They made the statement for reasons that many of us don't really know about. My my gut feeling is because they come from kind of a funding, fundraising kind of startup background where they have investors and all of this. They chucked out some buzzwords to try and push up their levels and they never really had this full plan out there for how they were going to handle it. They made the announcement. People were obviously very unhappy about it and I feel like there's a good chance that they'll just go back on it. I personally, until they actually put out a statement that says, this is what we're doing and this is when it's happening, then I'm not concerned about it in the slightest because I feel like, you know, as with everything, they said something, they realised that it wasn't necessarily right, perhaps they didn't do the right level of research and I'm kind of giving them the benefit of the doubt until they kind of keep pushing down that channel. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, I agree with you on the investor's angle as well. The whole thing smacks of our investors have asked about blockchain. So we've said a thing about blockchain. Absolutely. Gain money coming in. So Jamie and I recently covered the Stonemaier Games annual financial report on the cast. Uh, We were quite surprised by how small that team was considering the impact of their output. Uh, Could you take us through the formation of City of Games and what your current company structure looks like? Yeah, so I mean, the City of Games is just me. There is no one else. I basically do everything myself. There's contractors who are bringing in for kind of artwork on projects, obviously an artist when I'm working on a new game. But outside of that, everything's me from organizing manufacturing and logistics, talking to retailers, distributors, translation partners, to doing marketing sales, designing the games, writing the rule books, the social channels, um, support, you know, absolutely everything is, is just done by me. Wow. (laughs) That is a lot of work for one man. 
Is that quite common in the industry, though? Because Stillmeyer seemed to be similar. They had a very small core team. I think Stillmeyer was maybe four or five people max. And then they said, yeah, we have like 100 plus contractors over the course of the last two years helping us out with bits and pieces. Is that quite a common structure? Very small teams with lots of contractors. I think that it's kind of the answer is both yes and no and a a big part of it comes down to the mindset of the individuals and what they want to achieve. I think there are people who are definitely growing teams. There are definitely some companies that have big teams like Lucky Duck Games. I think a couple of years ago were somewhere around 10 to 20 people and now they're at kind of 50 people and they're a company that have brought on a lot of staff and they're growing and being very successful again if you take a company like call mini or not they have a huge huge team and i think that you'll just find that different companies sit at different sizes and it really comes down to what they're trying to achieve and what they're comfortable with i think that something that both jamie from stonemaier and myself have in common is neither of us are pushing to bring out hundreds of games every year we both work on let's have a small amount of releases and really focus on that quality that certainly helps bring down the kind of number of people you need but really like for me it just comes down to I enjoy kind of doing the whole process you know when I started doing this this is what I wanted to do and I've kind of made the active decision that my goal each year is to improve myself to get better like last year my big challenge to myself was to learn like 3d rendering and like a whole bunch of 3d stuff and I spent a lot of the year doing that the year prior to that my goal was to get really kind of much better at kind of video recording and kind of setting up my own studio so I could do my own videos and I just pushed myself I really want to learn more whilst with other people you know that can become overwhelming it becomes too much and it becomes much more beneficial for them to bring in other people so i think that every publishing company will probably have a bunch of contractors they work on for various stuff but in regards to whether it's a team of one or two people versus a team of like five or ten people i think that really just comes down to the personal preferences of what those people are trying to achieve you mentioned they're sort of focusing on a few individual products, much like Stonemaier does as well. You mentioned earlier in the cast that prices and all, all the rises we're seeing in various sort of ways of getting games to people are going to impact companies. Usually we're seeing, like, certainly pre-pandemic, we were seeing 3,000 to 4,000 board games released a year, something of that ilk. Do you think we're going to see a massive reduction in the number of titles as people try and focus more on sort of individual titles and just because it's much more expensive to make games now? I would love to say yes, but I feel like the answer will be no. (laughs) I think that we'll see a shift in the sense of there'll probably be some people who are working on more smaller games but because they're working on smaller games they're going to want to have a higher quantity because you know for example if you set a game and just to make up some random numbers if you make 10% profit off a game if you're selling a game for $50 you're going to make $5 if you set a game for $100 you're going to make $10 so if you're selling $50 games you're going to want to sell two of those for every one $100 game so I think as we see people shifting to smaller stuff then those people are going to need to start selling higher volumes to start getting those same kind of levels of profit so i think that in regards to the games we're still going to have lots of new people like this is a very inviting industry with the fact that crowdfunding allows us to kind of create games i think that we're going to see publishers come and go i think that we'll probably see some of the older publishers who maybe aren't able to kind of adjust to the modern trends maybe they haven't had the right margins are going to struggle and maybe not get through it but generally speaking in terms of the volume i don't think it's going to change that much what do you think the health of the uk tabletop industry in particular is like I think it's good. I think that there's a good number of UK-based publishers, but it's it's really tricky because having not been to conventions for two years, you don't really yeah. get to see them and interact with them as much. So you don't really see where people are at. Normally for me, I go to you know up to 10 conventions in a year. So I get to chat to people quite regularly, quite frequently, find out what's going on. Whilst these days, it's a much rarer um, thing. So I know 
countless new people in the UK who are constantly trying to get into the industry, releasing games, pushing as a very healthy kind of new creator, new publisher vibe. The generation that I grew up with um, all seem to be kind of doing very well at this point. There's a number of other publishers who started, you know, around the same time as me and seem to be succeeding. And there's also a couple of kind of bigger companies around as well. So I think it's a really, really good place. Like there's more publishers in the UK than I would have expected there to be in the UK when I first kind of started. Yeah, there's been a vibrancy. I'm, I'm thinking around about the same time as you, I'm thinking Alley Cat and Brain Crack, companies like that, who have been consistently putting out good products for the last few years and, and seem to be growing bringing in new games bringing in new talent yeah yeah absolutely and um hall or nothing which is um tristan oh, yeah. and kind of yeah. killforth yeah. and like again all that same kind of generation yeah so the pandemic saw a lot of tabletop companies embrace uh, the digital uh you put out a remote edition of isle of cats and it has re- uh, that game has recently been added to the stable of games available through board game arena what do you think the future of digital board games looks like I feel like it's always going to be popular to some degree. I'll I'll be honest and like, they're not for me. They're not something that I particularly enjoy. I much prefer the physical side. I came from being someone who worked in the IT world. As I got into board games, I just, I enjoyed the physical nature of it. And I'm not really interested in kind of digital simulations of those physical experiences so for me personally during the pandemic it was a solution to a problem but i feel like it also introduced another dimension to a whole bunch of people i feel like it helps people that don't have local gamers people who don't have the budgets or the spaces to be having all of these games get more into it and therefore introduce their friends into it and so on so i feel like it's going to be a very healthy kind of side part of the hobby i feel like it's going to bring more people into the hobby and it's definitely a good thing but i definitely wouldn't see it as something that's going to kind of like replace the hobby or kind of have that kind of impact do you think we'll see more i mean we're st- we are seeing more sort of digital integration into physical board games as well sort of apps being used in games we've got things like tilt 5 coming out and um tenebrae was banded about a few years ago by cool mini or not and that seems to have come back recently the sort of digital board game consoles effectively do you think there's any future in that sort that sort of hardware it's it's one of those things where you have to remember that the board game industry is such a small industry compared to a lot of other hobbies you know like our biggest youtube channels which is the reference i always use have you know 300,000 subscribers i think dice tower just hit 300,000 i think sharp and sit down maybe around 350,000 maybe i'm slightly off on that but you know they're both within that region and then all of the others are kind of down from there whilst if you go and look at like a knitting hobbyist youtube channel you can find one with some million subscribers if you go to video game channels you can find ones with tens and hundreds of millions like we are a small hobby that is growing exponentially like over the last five to ten years the board game industry has changed its face entirely compared to what it was you know back then you wouldn't see anyone out and about playing games like these days you see people in pubs playing board games we've got board game cafes we've got hundreds of conventions like the entire industry has shifted but the point being is when you start talking about digital platforms you know these physical digital integrations and all of this stuff you're really talking about another subset of something that's already small and over time it could definitely grow it could definitely become bigger i think there'll be people very passionate about it but they're not things that i really like see as being big within the next five to ten years i think they're a much longer journey than that yeah we're we are seeing people put out more games to sort of attract in well, we saw people like Stonemaier put out Wingspan, which is phenomenally popular, has been featured on Coronation Street, of all things. Yep. And uh, we just before we came on, uh, Asmodee announced uh, an accessibility uh, sort of, what's the word I'm looking for, an accessibility project where they're making some of their games more accessible to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. 
how important do you think that sort of access, those accessibility considerations, colorblindness, that kind of thing, are to the future of the hobby and getting people into the hobby? I think that they're all critical. I think the more accessible and the more inclusive we can be with all of this stuff, just the better it's going to be for everyone. There's nothing worse than picking something up and just not being able to interact with it and people kind of being pulled off from that side and just having a negative experience. Because for me, you know, a lot of people have different disadvantages in life. You know, there might be something where they can't see something properly or hear something, or they may have struggle reading or with arithmetic or whatever it is. But you often will keep that to yourself. And the last thing you want to do is be out with like a bunch of friends sat at a table and you can't see something, you can't understand something because this game hasn't presented itself in a way that it could have. And then it puts you in a situation where you kind of suddenly feel, you know, embarrassed or vulnerable. And I'm not saying obviously you should be embarrassed or anything like that, but it puts people in uncomfortable situations and we need to make sure that we're avoiding that. We need to be accessible. I think, you know, as you were talking about with like wingspan, to me, this is the biggest thing in our industry right now we need to be growing and every game i release moving forward the mindset is how do we get more people into this hobby i know that i can design a game that board gamers are going to enjoy you know how much they enjoy it is a different discussion but i know <laughs> i can yeah. design a board game that board gamers are going to enjoy but the question on my mind is can i design a game that non-board gamers will enjoy you know wingspan was fantastic because it brought in that kind of bird hobbyist market so let's look at other hobbyist markets let's look at other things and think about how can we bring those people in this is where video game kind of board game like ip kind of um, adaptions you know are often painful because they're not often great but they're great for bringing more people into the hobby getting people aware and this is what i really want to see us focusing on how do we kind of make these things easy to play make them accessible make them approachable make them so everyone can play but then also make them appealing to people who aren't playing board games so we can just grow and continue to expand that hobby yeah, I think Prospero Hall's been doing great work in that way. They've been doing a lot of movie tie-in board games. Jaws is absolutely fantastic. They've released Alien recently. Disney Villain, the series, has been phenomenally popular. I've seen it in all sorts of places. And yeah, those film tie-in games, I, I agree, the IP crossover is is good. I mean, yeah, you're right. They've, they've had a history of being terrible. <laughs> But I think that's I think that is changing quite a lot now. And with the Embracer group buying Asmodee, and now they've got access to, well, they just bought a huge chunk of Square Enix, which is Tomb Raider and all of their Western properties. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot more of that kind of thing, especially from Asmodee and its associated companies. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think it's a really, really good thing for all of us. Yeah. Uh, so you've recently been appointed to the Game Manufacturers Association board. How did that come about? And what do you hope to do with the position? So yeah, so the Gamma kind of um, board position was an interesting one. And, you know, it comes from this thing of Gamma is an association that's been around for a long time. And as someone in the board game industry, having an association that is, its job, you know, is to basically grow the industry, make sure people are playing games, make sure people are selling games, make sure people can play games and get games. It is that overarching, it's great for everyone in the industry if it's doing it well if it's doing it properly if it's doing it in the way that is good for all of us and they've definitely you know over the last 10 years they have gone a long long way in moving in towards that direction but I was sitting down and talking with um, my partner, my girlfriend, about Gamma and kind of our views on it. And we kind of said, you know, there's still things that it isn't doing. There's still this big divide from where we want it to be or where we would like it to be and where it is. And my options are either kind of to sit back and moan and complain and just kind of you know, <laughs> post on Twitter and post on Facebook or be silent and just not be happy or perhaps I step up, perhaps I push for that change, perhaps I help try and be someone who is invoking that change into the association. And that's where it really came back from. It was this thing of, 
I love the concept. I feel like it's getting close to achieving that concept, but it needs kind of fresh blood. It needs people who are different in the way they think, people who have got, you know, a wider range, a newer kind of understanding of the industry to help that kind of more long-term kind of existing stuff to try and develop it into a great modern association. Yeah, they've been hiring more. They've been expanding the board in the last year or so. There's much more positions on it, and that's great to see. However, uh, we can't really talk about Gamma without talking about the most recent controversy that's happened. They came under fire in the last week or so for accepting a guy called John Del Arroz as a member, uh, not on the board, uh, just a member of Gamma. He's a controversial figure, having been banned from Twitter for various instances of hate speech. I saw one tweet from him where he was celebrating Elon Musk taking over Twitter because he would then be able to say the N-word on Twitter. Lovely. He's also an advocate for Comicsgate and has a YouTube video rating game reviewers by hotness, not the BGG hotness, the other kind. How do you think Gamma should deal with this situation? Uh, what can be done to repair their reputation? And how should members be vetted in the future? So I think that this is obviously a very, very difficult question. And what I would like to do is kind of take it back a layer and kind of explain a little bit about Gamma. Because sure. for me, as someone, you know, I joined the board at the start of April. So it's been, you know, less than two months since I kind of got involved in that. And I want to start by explaining what the board is. So Gamma is an association that's been around for getting on for 50 years. And it has two different teams of people. It has the data operational team. So these are the staff that are paid by Gamma to do day-to-day -day stuff. If you see a tweet, it'll be one of those. The people who organize the conventions, it will be that team. Anything that gets done on that day-to-day -day basis will be from that operational side. The board, of which there are 12 people, is a purely voluntary position that people can put themselves forward for, be voted into by members of the association, and then they get a two-year term, which obviously can be re-extended if they continue to be voted in. And the board's position is not to do day-to-day, -to, -day, to not be involved in like, let's do this on Twitter or let's do this. Their position is to make sure that a, Gamma is obviously keeping with all of its legal requirements. It's a non-profit organisation, which means it has certain requirements. But to make sure that the staff are doing a good job and also to set the vision for the organisation, to make sure that we are kind of setting those goals of this is what we want to be achieving, this is what should be happening. So effectively, the board will sit together, they'll have a discussion, they'll say, this is something we want to see happen. They'll then tell the staff, then this is what we'd like to see happen, come back to us and tell your, us how you're going to achieve it. So that's kind of the divide between the two teams. Now, alongside that, I mentioned that because it's a not-for-profit, there's certain laws and legalities they have to follow because they have certain guidelines within the legal systems that have to be followed. And alongside that, they have the bylaws. And the bylaws are effectively written by the board members. They get discussed, they get voted on, and then they get put out there. And everyone can see them. If you go to the website of Gamma right now, go to the governing docs page, you'll see the bylaws and you can read through all of them. If we want to make changes, it's an incredibly long process. You know, the change has to go through, it has to go through legal procedures, it then has to be voted on through a special meeting that has to have a certain amount of time, and then a majority of the membership group have to vote on that and so on. So the purpose of like why I'm explaining all of this is sometimes something bad happens, right? And I'll give you a really silly example. Let us imagine that we're at the Origins trade show, which is a gamma run event. And as I say, it's going to be silly, but let's imagine a T-Rex suddenly appears out of nowhere, runs through the convention center and starts smashing up stands and, you know, doing all sorts of damage to people. Now, you could turn around and go, no one on this planet ever expected that to happen right that is so far outside of reality that of course the bylaws the organizational structure of what gamma is allowed to do and how it does it is not going to have any statements on this and that's just a given but then let's layer that back a little bit let's sit down and say well what might happen what situations could occur and are the bylaws going to cover those and you know sometimes you have this chicken and egg situation 
situation where something happens and you look at it and go, that situation wasn't great. It should have been covered in the bylaws, but yet not a single person ever mentioned it or thought about it or discussed it or wrote it into those bylaws because you don't necessarily think about it. So, you know, I would challenge anyone who's listening to this, you know, think of bad things that might happen, go and read those bylaws, and if you don't think they're covered, then raise it, mention it, you know, email me, post it on Facebook or Twitter, and then say, this should be covered. Because the problem is that when something bad happens, if it isn't covered by particular written laws within the bylaws, then you can't just make a sudden on-the-spot action decision. Because there's the galities, there's kind of this whole culture of what is the rule? What is our position on this? And if we don't have a position, you can't just make it up on the spot because that's not within the terms of what's been done. So as part of my job of kind of joining this board, my job is to make sure that when something happens that of course you know we state our views on it and kind of make sure that the operational team do what they can to kind of deal with that situation but my fundamental job in my head with this stuff is how do we make sure it doesn't happen again what do we do what do we change so in the situation you um, explained earlier I would say that over the next few weeks you're going to see multiple communications regarding a whole range of stuff not just that situation but a whole range of stuff coming out from gamma which is going to be those more long-term kind of what's going to happen and what's kind of changing and some of this stuff is things that you know we won't be able to talk about for months because they say there's huge procedures that have to go through and it sucks you know I want to be really clear and honest I know that if someone does something and it potentially puts someone at risk or hurts someone you know you can't just say oh let's leave that for months like that's fine because that's not fine. And there is this line, but you also have to understand that as an organ association with certain legal requirements, you do have to follow procedures. And if those bylaws don't have an immediate response to those situations, then you are kind of stuck in this hole. So as I say, people read those bylaws, make suggestions. And the positive thing I can say is 10 of the 12 board members at the moment are all pretty much brand new people. They're all people who have joined in the last within the last kind of eight or nine months I believe it is like no one's been there for very long at all and all of us are there let's look at these things let's work out how we can change these things let's make sure that moving forward we have processes in place and you know I reckon we're going to have a few more hiccups in the months to come I think we're probably going to have more problems but we're also going to be much much more proactive in making sure that long term we only have these happen once so you're talking about sort of the process there and the fact that the board are separated out from the sort of running the day-to-day -day of, of Gamma. Is it the day-to-day -day staff that sort of accept members into Gamma or how, how does that go about? Yeah, so there is an acceptance process which, um, you know, someone applies and then they get accepted. Now, one of the things that's kind of interesting, and again, I've got to, I can't go into too much detail about current situations because there's still kind of correspondence kind of being sent out. But there are different levels of acceptance. And what I mean by that is there's an acceptance of someone into Gamma as an association. And then there's also the Facebook group and other groups and acceptance into those groups. And one of the things that's kind of become quite aware, um, we've become quite aware of, and something that definitely needs to be kind of worked on, is right now there's kind of some gaps between those different places. And what I mean by that is you can bypass some of them to get into others when potentially you shouldn't be able to obviously i don't want to talk about details because i don't want to like encourage other people to do it but that is definitely one of those holes and this is one of those things that becomes complicated right because i say to you it's not just a case of okay don't you know steal apples from a shop we should write that down it's more about kind of well if this happens and that happens and this happens at the same time then it leaves a hole for something else to happen and how we kind of capture that and i would say that kind of recent events have definitely kind of fallen into that category Sure. With all its sort of problems and benefits uh, of, of Gamma, do, do you think that the UK tabletop scene would benefit from something like Gamma or is, is it just a matter of those publishers being part of Gamma? Would we benefit from a more UK focused version of it? So I think that Gamma 
is like Gamma is a global association. The majority of its members are um, US based, and I think there's a good chunk from Canada as well for obvious reasons. But it's something that I'm very focused on at the moment of how do we make this work better for non US companies? And the reason for that is obviously I'm not based in the US. And for yeah. me, I was, you know, I think, I don't know for sure, but this recent board elections, which introduced six more people, was, has introduced three people who are not based in the US into the board. And I don't think today there's ever been that number of non-US people on the board. I'm not sure if there's ever been more than one. I Obviously, it's been around for a long time, so I don't know. But sure. there's definitely a chunk of non-US people joining. And that's two people from the UK and one person from from Europe. And I think that all of us are very focused on how do we help spread and expand this. As a publisher who's based in the UK, America is a huge part of my audience. And having connections to hundreds and hundreds of retailers in America, every distributor in America, media from America, every other kind of part of the industry in America is a huge benefit. So for non-US people, I do think that Gamma is a great way in to meeting up with those people. But right now, how we kind of expand that and bring in kind of the non-US kind of focus for people over here is something which I literally have a meeting to discuss tomorrow because it's very very much on my agenda for how can we start kind of pushing in that direction more. What's your sort of split between US and UK sales? So for me personally, um, the US is around 55% and the UK is around 15%. Right. Okay. And the, and the rest is sort of Far East. So Europe is 20%. And then um, the rest of it is kind of scattered around kind of Canada, Australia and Asia and kind of a big part of that area. How much of Europe is Germany out of interest? Do you know? (laughs) Um, Off the top of my head, I don't know, but it's definitely not as much as you would probably imagine. One of the things that's really surprised me in recent years is that French or France um, and the French language has become really, really big. And I'm often now seeing like the French side of things competing with the German side of things. And on top of that, there's many other countries around in Europe that are all quite active in both English versions and then translated versions of games. Thank you very much, Frank, for coming along to the lecture tonight and having a chat with me. Very much appreciated. Uh, it's been a fascinating chat. I hope to have you back in at some point, and hopefully, I'll see you at a convention in the not too distant future. I'm not getting to many myself this year. Are you, are you coming up to Tabletop Scotland at all? Um, no, I don't think I will be. It's it's funny because I'm two of my really good friends are literally moving to Scotland next week. So we've kind of been like, maybe it's a good opportunity to go and see them in their new place and kind of do it, but. I just don't think it's going to be viable just yet because we've got, well, having not done shows for a couple of years, there's suddenly quite a lot of shows that we're doing this year and we've got to kind of pick and choose quite um, harshly, unfortunately. Yeah, that's, that's fair enough. I'm, I'm assuming sort of Gen Con, Essen are sort of the big ones for you. Yeah, I mean, UK Games Expo um, is yeah, big for me because of being in the UK. Also, you have Origins, and I've just kind of come back from Gamma's trade show kind of a few weeks ago. So those are kind of like the big five or six. Um, I don't know which ones I mentioned, but yeah, they, those are the big ones for sure. Thanks for coming along. It's been a pleasure to have you here. And uh, yeah, uh, best of luck for UK Games Expo. No, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. And I look forward to chatting again with you in the future. Thank you. Bye for now, folks.